Sweet to have our hearts prepared to receive the God's Word, and I invite you to open up to the book of Daniel. We get to continue in our study in Daniel, and this is really a rich opportunity now to begin to look at this marvelous book. As you turn there, consider this thought. Daniel was a man of God, highly esteemed, even highly esteemed during his time. The prophet Ezekiel had written the words of the Lord, and the Lord declared this statement, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. God referred to Daniel, Noah, and Job. One of these men is, are not like the others. Daniel, being alive at the time of Ezekiel writing, was a man who walked on earth, a man who was highly esteemed, that his own life was already, while he was living, compared with the quality of Job and Noah. It's a righteous man. Later in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, if you look over there, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is praying, and as he is praying, he's in great distress, and the angel Gabriel comes to him and brings a message to Daniel. Notice down in verse 22, it says, Gabriel speaking, he says, he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the, the beginning of your, or in verse 23, at the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. And I have noticed, I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Daniel was a man of God who was righteous in his life. But even as the angel Gabriel revealed that even heaven esteemed him in high regard, Ezekiel and the other prophets who lived during his time had also viewed Daniel in high regard. The captives of Israel had viewed Daniel in high regard. And the question at hand for us is, how did Daniel get to this place? How did he get to the place of being one who was recognized as being a man of character, a man of virtue? And it's tonight's study that sets the backdrop that really reveals how it was that Daniel's character was so quickly manifest and so persistently manifest. As a reminder, where we're at, verses 1 and 2, sets up the whole setting, just as in normal prophecy, that will give a context. Here's what Daniel wrote. It was in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. The timing of the book is 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian commander of the armies, came in and conquered Judah as he was chasing the Egyptians back to Egypt. 
And as he conquered the uh, Judah, he hears news that his father, Nebuchadnezzar, died. So he wraps up the conquest there in Judah, wraps up his pursuit of the Egyptian army, and he takes with him a group of captives along with some of the choice instruments from the house of the Lord. He takes them back to Babylon to put them into his service. And this is the first deportation then in 605 B.C. At this time, Daniel is between the ages of 14 and 18. Likely, he is around the age of 14. Now, this is, at this point here, this is Daniel's indoctrination. This is, for every parent, their worst nightmare. Your child is taken away from you, taken into a foreign country, Taught in that foreign country a new language, a new culture, new values, a new religion. In essence, your child is being radicalized. Imagine, for example, ISIS coming in, conquering Venice, grabbing your children and taking them away. You fear losing them? You fear that they're going to head out and become radicalized Muslims? You fear their safety? You may even, at this point, never see your kids again. No indication that Daniel was able even to see his family again from this. But this is his very state at the beginning of this chapter in verses 1 and 2. This captive group of people are taken back to Babylon. And the parents now are have no longer any control, any influence. And Daniel and his friends are on his own. And what we see then is the indoctrination that Daniel and his friends are about to face. Now tonight, we'll look at verses 3 through 7. Here's what Daniel writes in these verses. Then the king ordered Asphanaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and he pointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah Shadrach, and to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. This sets up for us the indoctrination. The first significant challenge that Daniel was to face, this really is the context that really revealed the nature and the character of Daniel, that he was a man of God. And there is so much that is happening in this context because in the demonstration of this very context, we see the true character of Daniel that draws out. He is facing the temptation to compromise. 
to abandon his values, to leave what he has taught and learned in Israel, to leave his God and to head after new gods, to abandon all that his parents taught him, all that he had learned from a young man, everything that he had faced in life is now being tested at a young age to see, does he believe or not? We look around and this really sets for us the importance of the discussion. What draws us into compromise? What does it mean to compromise? To turn away, to abandon your values, to abandon your convictions, to abandon what you have learned and embraced. What leads somebody to compromise? If we were to look around today, that's one of the things that is Evident that is, we live in a world where there is constant compromise. Who do we look to any longer to say that is one who doesn't compromise? That is a person that doesn't back down. In fact, if you're the kind of person who doesn't back down, you're actually seen as somebody who is proud, as somebody who is a problem, not as somebody that is virtuous any longer. To be inflexible, to be unmovable is to be seen as, as a deterrence rather than as a something of virtue. We live in a world of compromise. Daniel chapter 1 actually exposes us to the practice of compromise. And in particular, what we learn in these verses here from verse really 1 through 7, is we learn of the context of compromise. There are particular ways in which Satan works that draw us away from our convictions, away from our values, into compromise. To call us to abandon what's right and to embrace error and to head into unrighteousness. And in this text, there in fact, there are six ways, six areas that we are tempted that to draw into compromise, and I'll alliterate it with the letter I. It's isolation, influences, illustriousness, ideologies, incentives, and identity. And I'll repeat, repeat these as we work our way through this. But these six I's, these six categories, are ways in which we are drawn in our heart, lured away from our convictions, and we move into the realm of compromise. And it is Daniel, as a young man, facing these very temptations, these areas of challenge, and resisting them that demonstrated this is a man of virtue that he faced from many different angles and ways the challenge to move away from his convictions and values, to move away and abandon his God. And he resisted all of these areas of temptation to demonstrate above all else, this is a man of great virtue. The first is area, the way in which we are tempted to be lured away from the truth is that of isolation. Now, as I noted here in the verses 1 of 2, this sets this all up, that a group of youth were taken away. We saw again the youth that were, had no defects were the ones who were called out. These youths who left home were taken away into Babylon. They were isolated from their families. This is the setting of the whole book. 
They were left home, and they didn't leave home willingly. They left home here by deportation. And at this point now, they were no longer under their parents' rule. They're no longer under the restrictions of their house. They're no longer under the restrictions of the community that they grew up in. They're no longer living under the personal value system of the Jews and the Jewish system. They are now out on their own in a whole new context. The only authority they have to obey now is that of the Babylonian authority, and their concern is not virtue and character. Their concern, concern is keeping them in order, keeping their kids in line. It's all they're concerned about. Then they can do whatever they want. These Jewish youth no longer have their parents to direct them, no longer have the religious leaders to direct them. They are now on their own path, isolated from any kind of accountability that they had previously, isolated from their family, again, isolated from their teachers. They are, again, set into this place of isolated from their environment in which they were trained and at a remarkably young age. As I said, likely at this point, they're junior hires or the beginning of high school. They are at a state in which they had very little time of preparation and testing. They are now immediately, by the providence of God, cast out into the front lines here. By the way, parents... This should remind us of a mindset we should have when we are raising our kids. We are training our kids. We are preparing them. We're giving them education. We're training them morally. We're training them in communication. We're training them in worship. But at some point in time, they're going to be tested to figure out how are they going to stand on their own. What are they going to do when they finally grow up, when they take on their own personality and have to respond They will be forced to demonstrate that they have formed convictions. They will move away from your example. They're going to move away from your reach. And at that time, their heart is going to be revealed. In this case, here, these youth were isolated, taken away from their homes, now under a new context, a new environment. And the question set before them is, will these youth remember the God that they once worshipped? Are they going to remember their God? That is the test. It is rather interesting in our own church, the number of young people who come to a point where they recognize this, that as they were growing up, they were moved into an area of testing and they found out whether their faith was their own faith or a faith borrowed by, from their parents. And they were tested by their friends, tested as they moved out. And in fact, we've heard that testimony many times in the waters of baptism here with many young kids saying, I was tested And I saw that my heart was bending towards evil and I became fearful of where I was at and I recognized I needed to turn to the Lord. There are times in which we are then separated from the environments we're in and in separating, our convictions come out. Our children leave home and they face the world. And in facing the world, their hearts are revealed for whether or not their faith is their own. Here, in this particular text, again, we recognize this is what happened to Daniel. 
not by choice. Some choose to isolate, and in choosing to isolate, face greater temptation. That's where, again, Proverbs 18.1 says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. He pulls away. There is a purposeful separation that could take place. But there is a kind of separation that's used for testing. This happened to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 in the temptation of Christ. Matthew chapter 4, it says, The Spirit led Christ out into the wilderness where he was tested by Satan. There is an isolation there that has led to the testing and the proving of the character of an individual. It's Peter who had denied Christ when he was isolated, who had pulled away from the other disciples. He had entered into the house of the high priest, had watched or stood out in the outer courts, and in that time of separation, he was tempted, tested, and denied the Lord. Isolation is one of the big tools that Satan uses to draw somebody out, to expose them. It's a weapon in which our enemy uses to test, to try. And ultimately, I would think as parents, our goal is to prepare our kids to be ready to stand in that time. Our kids are going to grow up. They're going to move out. There's going to be a a facing of these things on their own. That is natural in life. Some of it happens by choice. Some of it happens by providence. And some of it happens by design to test But we should be concerned when we are isolated and pulled away because this is the first context in which one faces the temptation to compromise. But there are others. The second temptation or realm is that of influences, particularly ungodly influences. Notice verse 3. You see a few characters here. First of all, you see the king. And you see Asphanaz, the chief of his officials. Then you see down in verse 8, another one. Daniel had sought permission from the commander of the officials. The same commander is also stated in verse 7, the commander of the officials. And then in verse 11, you see another individual, the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed. Four levels of authority, four levels of influence are demonstrated here. The highest, that of King Nebuchadnezzar. And then you had his right-hand man, Asphanaz, the chief of the officials, who then had delegates under him, the commander of the officials, and then you had an overseer who was appointed. Four levels of influence. This, particularly in this context, there is the emphasis of influence that comes from authority. But there might be other influences, but this one is particularly the influence of authorities, leaders who would make decisions, leaders who would be determining what those under them should do, these leaders who would be making decisions and directing the youth. Of course, Daniel now is going to have to come under this new authority, He's no longer under the authority of his parents or under the authority of the religious leaders back in Jerusalem. He's now under uh, the authority of these pagan idolaters. And this is where, again, we face temptation. We face temptation from outside influences. 
the temptation to compromise from these influences that are pulling us towards evil. We're tempted, tempted to compromise our integrity by the environment we're in. Wicked leaders constantly test us to mistrust and to circumvent righteousness and to do evil that good might come out of it. Wicked leaders create context for the practice of wickedness. And in that, our love grows cold. These are influences. These influences pressure us to move away again from our convictions and our values. These were the influences on Daniel and his friends, these, these religious and political leaders in Babylon. And you cannot underestimate the influence of ungodly leaders. They tempt us to compromise all the time. These ungodly influences, and obviously in this case it's leaders, but these ungodly influences could have even been friends. Could have been other individuals within the group, the other captives. You can't underestimate the value and the impact, particularly the impact of ungodly influences. How many times were, was an individual in a context tempted to do evil because he was prodded on by others? Tempted to engage in evil thought or an evil conversation just because others were engaged in that evil thought or evil conversation? That's a, that is an influence, a corrupting influence pushing one to compromise. And again, corrupt authority is a chief playground for Satan because it is in the corrupt authority that they could act and even encourage others to act according to evil. Satan uses, again, the wickedness in various kingdoms to influence the whole world to godlessness. And it's these draws that tempt us into the, air, into the realm of compromise. If everyone's doing evil, and if everyone's pursuing unrighteousness, and there is all of this authority bent towards wickedness, who am I to resist, says the heart. Says the mind of the naive one who is under the difficulty. These influences press upon the naive and press upon the immature. But there may be influences in leadership as evidenced in our text, but there might be other influences. Have the influence of entertainment that can draw us into evil. We can have other influences, friends who tempt us to evil. These are evil influences that pressure one to deflect from personal accountability and to embrace, embrace what the whole are doing. I mean, in this case, it would be very easy for Daniel and his friends to say, well, it wasn't my choice for the food I ate, and it wasn't my choice to be here, and it wasn't my choice, I just gave in to these things, because after all, these authorities said we ought to do it. Daniel is in a very difficult spot here. How does he honor his God and at the same time navigate having to dishonor authority who had rejected his God? In fact, we're going to see that when we come back and look at the virtue of Daniel. He did that very thing. 
He opposed the ungodly influence of the wicked leaders of Babylon while at the same time still showing honor to them. This was, a, again, a virtuous man. We know the king, as the text indicated, the king is demonstrated there in verse 3. But there is the next person who is demonstrated, Asphanaz. This could be a title or it could be a name. I'm taking it as a name, the name of a chief official. He is, as the text indicates there, he is the chief of his officials, the chief of Nebuchadnezzar's officials. The word official could be translated as official or as eunuchs. Some of your translations may say that he is the chief of the eunuchs. Really, I think the word there is official. It doesn't necessarily mean that he was a eunuch. It just means that he was uh, an official in the Babylonian system of government. The word eunuch could mean both officer or eunuch. Genesis chapter 37 verse 6 says this, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's official or Pharaoh's eunuch. Well, you know Potiphar had a wife. He was not a eunuch. He had a wife. He was an officer, an official. It's the exact same word there, Potiphar's official or Potiphar's eunuch. It's the exact same word as our word here used of Aphanas, or Asphanaz, who is the chief of his officials. This is, again, a political leader, an official, who had other officials under him who he delegated, and two more are dedicated here. These officials, again, they're not named. And I think Daniel particularly demonstrated the size of this operation to show us what he was under. He wasn't just under Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't just under Asphanaz. He was under the commander, and he's under another commander. Another official, four levels deep into this, is to demonstrate that what Daniel had to resist was a big force. It wasn't a small little nebulous group. This was a large structure that he was standing against. And he had to resist the influence of this particular political movement in order to be upright in his life. So there is the temptation of isolation to compromise. There's the temptation of influences, ungodly influences, to lead us to compromise. But the third way in which we're tempted to compromise is that through illustriousness. I did have to look, look for that word particularly. <laughs> but notice this. And this is really important because this is a significant word here. The king identifies who he wants to influence. And he goes after those who have personal success. Those who are exceptional in every way. Their illustriousness sets them apart. Listen carefully. The prettier you are, the more handsome you are, the smarter you are, the wealthier you are, the more you are a target to be influenced towards evil. That's exactly what's demonstrated in this text. Notice verse 3. He commanded him to bring some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, 
youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. These were those who were very successful by their own personal virtues. They were highly distinguished and renowned. In this context, they were renowned for their natural abilities. This is the idea of illustrious. It is one who is highly distinguished and renowned. And what were they renowned for? Well, some were renowned because they were, of course, from prominent families. This whole group, they were from prominent families. They came from royal households. They came from the nobles, the upper class of society within Israel. Babylon would have selected these particular kids for a reason. In one sense, it became a way to keep Judah in line. Judah decided to rebel. If they decided to fight against the Babylonians and to push them out, they had their kids held captive. They can use the children as threats. Judah rebelled. It was their kids who would be murdered. This would, again, cause the Babylonians to seek out the kids of the rulers because they were going to use, be used as a bargaining chip. But more than that, if you had trained these Jewish youth and turned them to Babylonians, you could use them to influence the next generation of Babylonians. And so these youths were the target. It's no surprise then that those of prominence, those who have been successful, those of prominent homes become targets. But it didn't stop at that. This target for influence moved on. He picked out kids again who had no defects. This is, they had health. They were healthy. They had no crippling attributes. They were mentally sharp. They were physically sharp. They weren't, weren't underdeveloped in any way. They were healthy. Top of that, they were, as the text indicates there, who were good-looking. Their appearance was pleasing to the eye. They were naturally good-looking, beautiful and handsome, easy to interact with because you enjoyed their beauty. And on top of that, it was the king targeted those who were intellectual. They had intelligence. They were able to discern every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge. They were able to acquire wisdom, acquire understanding, acquire knowledge, and use it. They were smart. And then on top of that, if that wasn't enough, he targeted those with abilities. They had the ability to take that knowledge, to take that background in history and use it in such a way that would be beneficial to the king and to his purposes. They are the physically fit. They are the beautiful, the handsome. They are the prominent families or from prominent families. They are the intellectuals. This is the one's 
that were targeted by the Babylonians to compromise. It's no surprise that Satan attacks prominent institutions. I mean, is, is anyone surprised to learn that at one point Harvard and Yale used to be seminaries? Is anyone surprised that seminaries don't last a couple of generations before they drift away into air? Is anyone surprised that churches that used to be a prominent place of virtue in the proclamation of the gospel are basically dead throughout Europe? You look around and it is that which was a place of virtue is attacked. We are crippled or tempted by our own illustriousness, our own renown, our own natural ability, our own natural strengths, our own privileges, our own strengths become the very source for our temptations, the very source for, for us to rest in ourselves and our own abilities and to move into compromise. Because man constantly looks on the outside, it is God looking at the heart, and a man looking on the outside, he is attracted to the beauty and attracted to the intelligence and attracted to the prominence. We become tempted. Satan targets the beautiful and the healthy. He targets the smart and the influential. He targets those from prominent families. There is no surprise that it is pastor's kids who have the reputation of being devils. They are the target. They are the target to compromise, the target to drift into air. They are the ones that everyone wants their approval because then they approve their evil. It's no surprise. We're tempted by our own illustriousness, our own personal success. And we've become comfortable with our abilities, the attraction. The beautiful get better jobs. The handsome get more opportunities. The physically healthy are the ones who are the leaders, the natural-born leaders. The ones who are smart and intelligent find the better jobs. All of this because Satan uses our natural abilities to draw us into self-reliance. And that's exactly who the king had targeted in this, is all of those who had the natural ability to trust in themselves. Because they were going to be the most useful to him. Satan would use then our own personal successes. And again, notice, the possession of these things aren't wrong. I mean, Daniel, after all, is in this category. He is the one who is, he and his friends were the ones recognized as fulfilling these very attributes. It's not the possession of these things that would be wrong. It's the dependence and the reliance upon them. If you are in one of these categories, you have a personal illustriousness, you are renowned for one of these qualities that sets you apart, you're in a place of vulnerability, temptation to compromise. So that leads to the fourth category, that of ideologies. We have isolation, can tempt us to compromise. Influences can tempt us to compromise. Illustriousness can tempt us to compromise. And this, ideologies, can tempt us to compromise. 
continued there in verse 4, after identifying these youths who were able to serve in the king's court, and he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. They were to embrace the Babylonian ideologies. This is the fourth way in which one, they were, Daniel and his friends were tempted to compromise. They were taught the Babylonian doctrines and language and ways. They had to learn the language of the Chaldeans. They had to learn the language of the courts. This would have been Aramaic. They had to learn the language of the day and they can communicate. Particularly, the language of the Chaldeans is going to become important later on when Daniel is interpreting dreams. Chaldeans were those who regularly regarded dreams and recorded dreams and would categorize dreams. The whole language of the Chaldeans was a very pictographic language. And they would draw out these symbols on clay tablets and they would dry and they would have these, tab- these tablets stored and they would go back to them to understand, again, the purpose of the dreams. These youth had to learn these ideologies. They had not only had to learn the language, they had to learn the meaning of this language. They had to be recalling this language. And in the process of learning all those things, they would be tempted. Am I going to embrace this new knowledge or that which I grew up with? The knowledge of my God. They were forced into these ungodly ideologies. False doctrines, which ultimately would have contradicted what they had learned. And, how, and they couldn't avoid it either. It wasn't as if they can just simply walk away from these ideologies and abandon it all. They were forced into it. So Daniel was forced to learn these things, forced to understand them, forced to be able to articulate them back and yet still resist, still oppose them, which certainly by the time we get to the end of Daniel, we'll see he did just that. It wasn't that we could keep them keep them from learning these things, he had to face them and still stand strong. This is what made Daniel significant, that he was able to resist compromise even in the face of being force-fed these ideologies, he was still able to resist. So he learned the literature, he learned the language of the Chaldeans, he learned their customs, he faced their doctrines, these doctrines of demons, He faced the precepts of men. He faced all the wisdom of the Babylonians. As he was learning all of those languages, learning those customs and practices, he was learning about the god Maduk, and he was learning about Aku, and he was learning about how the Babylonians worshipped them, and how that related to even the politics of the day. All of these ideologies would be coming upon these youths. And he was forced again to believe in the Lord, in the face of all of these ungodly doctrines. That would tempt one to compromise. I mean, how many people begin to compromise their virtues because they doubt there is a God? Because they have been told in, scripture, told in school or in other places, there's no God. The world isn't created. The world has been going on for millions and billions of years. And on and on it goes. God isn't a person. Uh, He's a force. 
ungodly ideologies, doctrines of demons, bent against God, encourage the heart to drift into compromise. Two more. Fifth, incentives. Incentives. Verse 5. You have isolation, you have influences, illustriousness, ideologies, and now incentives. Notice verse 5. Then the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he had drank, and he pointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. These are incentives now. The rewards and the pleasures of following after the Babylonian system. To be in this training ground, you are going to receive these marvelous incentives. And three incentives are identified here. The best foods, a formal education, and a nice job upon graduation. Right? I mean, I know I have two kids in college right now that these three incentives would just, you know, pull them right in. The best foods, this is it. They were appointed the king's food and wine. I mean, this is given the best of the best. Whatever the king was treated with, they were treated with. And they were to be treated well. This was a form, really, of, of a temptation to garner trust and garner loyalty to the royal household. To be treated like royalty, in essence, is what's happening here. We're going to treat these youth as we're training them and preparing them. We're going to treat them like royalty and give them the best foods and the best wine. Who knows if what extent that was. But they may have even been given access to something they had never been given access to before. Sure, they were beginning to taste foods that they had never tasted before because of the dietary restrictions of the Jewish diet. They were now tasting things, seeing things, smelling things that they had never experienced before. These incentives would be a draw to compromise. And if that's not enough, it was an education, a formal education. The three-year education here is significant because there's plenty of references in history to demonstrate that a three-year period of training was an official training. It had an official degree in the country that was the dominant world power of the day. These three years from the ages of likely 14 to 17 or 16 to 19, through those three years, they would garner the best education. And if that's not enough, to have a prominent job where you could be brought into the king's personal service. The end of verse 5. These are the incentives, the draw to move away from your convictions, away from your values, to gain something else, something of prominence. You don't have to eat like the poor any longer. You don't have to dwell among the hoi polloi any longer. You can come to the intelligentsia. You can come to the brilliance. And on top of that, you want a common job or do you want a government job alongside of the king in his courts? 
the incentives. Incentives draw them away into compromise. It reminded me of a time when there was a particular ministry that was offering a job at the church. And you could come to this church, and this church was offering a six-figure salary for a preaching pastor with regular sabbaticals, retirement, book allowance, conference allowance, and all the pastor had to do is preach two times a week. The candidate was told in the candidacy, you don't have to worry about counseling, you don't have to worry about coming to elders meetings, and you don't have to worry about discipling any other men, just preach. On the outside, pastor might look at that and think, this is an exceptional opportunity except for the fact that God had said that the man of God is to shepherd the flock of God among him, and except the fact that we are to teach and rebuke and exhort with all authority, and we are to take what we have learned and entrust these things to other men, except for the fact that the Bible has called us to all these things, if you took this particular job, you wouldn't have any of those burdens. It reminded me of this very principle right here. Incentives are a draw to compromise. I think the elders are not going to pay me anymore after this. Now there is the there is the draw. I remember particularly asking one of the search committee, you, "What if I wanted to go to an elders meeting?" To which they replied, "You don't need to be here." Well, what if we wanted to train men for ministry and encourage them? The answer is, that's not what the church does. There's the draw to compromise. And it uses incentives. Look, we'll provide everything for you. We'll we'll provide all the resources. Everything is provided for you. You can just take these things and not have to worry. And it may be that some of the incentives just dull the conscience a little bit. It is, again, one of Satan's chief tools. You remember when Christ was tempted, right? One, the third time, the third temptation came. First was bread, turn these stones you know, into bread. And, but then he was tempted with, you know, if you just fall down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Incentives. I'll give you all the rewards. You can have them all right now. You can have everything you want, everything you desired. Right now. I think this is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The incentives are temptation to draw us to compromise because these incentives bring a personal pleasure and even an identity which give us confidence. Say that I have this prominent job, to say I have this formal education, to enjoy all of the immediate personal benefits are hard to resist. And that's why a heart is drawn into compromise. It leads us to the last one, Identity. Incentives, and now finally, identity. Notice 
verse uh, 6 and 7. Now among them were sons of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now I'll just stop right there for a second. All of the youth faced these temptations. Four of them are particularly identified. Which means that all of these various forms and lures to compromise worked on the majority of them, but these four are going to stand out, as we will see. Of which, verse 7, the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah Shadrach, and to Mishael Mishach, and to Azariah Abednego. This is the sixth way in which we are lured to compromise, and that is through identity, the changing of a name. It is no surprise today that there is such a fight for identity politics. If we can start to redefine our identity, we can have influence. We can start to define and redefine gender and redefine uh, right and wrong. We can redefine oppressed groups. We can redefine victims. We can start to define the problem differently. We can also define a new solution. Identity is always the name of the game for this group. Define our own identity and you can define one's direction. Identity is a significant tool used by Satan to draw people into evil. Here, the Babylonians wanted to erase all of the Jewishness of these youth and make them Babylonians. Daniel's Hebrew name, which means God is my judge, is now Belteshazzar, possibly has the meaning may Bel protect his life. The god Bel is called upon now. And this would be then the name by which he was to go by in the courts. He was to go by Belteshazzar. He was to say of everyone who would hear of him, this is may Bel protect his life. Hananiah, which has the Hebrew name meaning Yahweh has been gracious, his name is changed to Shadrach, which has the possible meaning of this, the command of Aku, who is the moon god of the Babylonians. He is now identified with the moon god. Mishael, which has the meaning of his Hebrew name is who is what God is. His name is changed to Meshach, which has the possible meaning is who is what a coup is. It's a personal change of name to identify again with the Babylonian culture. And then finally, Azariah, who had the Hebrew name, which would mean Yahweh has helped. He is now Abednego, which means servant of Nabu or servant of the god Nabu. These Babylonian gods now are what these youths are to be identified by. The Babylonians were great in identifying and changing the identities of these youth. They were changed by the incentives they were given. They were changed by the names they were given. Identity politics is nothing new under the sun. This was even practiced again by the Babylonians. They brought these youth in. 
We are going to change them. We're going to change their whole convictions, their whole values. We're going to change their, all that they understood. Is there any surprise that you see even identity being challenged today? I don't understand how it is that someone can reach the level of being a Supreme Court justice and cannot identify a female because they cannot identify anymore. Identity has been lost. This is the force for compromise. It is a force used to draw one to evil. When we can no longer identify right or wrong, or we no longer have personal identity, when we can no longer call something for what it is, when we lose identity, you're in an environment for compromise. We don't know what a Christian is. We don't know what a believer is. We don't know what a male or female. We no longer have any objectivity. We've lost identity. And compromise is on its heels. To think about then this, this is what Daniel faced as a young man. Isolated from his family, isolated from his religious upbringing, in a realm where he was influenced not only by the political leaders, but influenced as well by his own companions who had drifted into embracing the Babylonian system. Tempted to rest in his own natural abilities, his own knowledge, his own handsomeness, his own health, receiving upon him as he's there the influx of all of these ideologies, maybe even some of them for the very first time, learning about Aku and Bel and Nabu and others learning of the Babylon system of dreams and interpretation of dreams, facing all of these influx of ideas, and at the same time being enticed to embrace the whole culture of the Babylonian system, and even being renamed, and yet he still had to stand for God. And that's what he did. When we come back next time, which will be in two weeks, we'll see the stance in which Daniel took to be a man of God. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the riches of this text and for the great example of Daniel. Indeed, he has faced personally so many temptations and yet resisted and stood firm and glorified you. Indeed, there is a reason why even in heaven, he was highly esteemed. We would pray that we would learn from this example, that we wouldn't be drawn into compromise, that we would be aware of all the ways in which we are lured to evil, so that we would resist and stand strong, able to glorify you, always persisting in our convictions and values, identified by you and your work, we are thankful for these examples and for this look that we can turn to this book and see again the riches of your good work. We pray that we would learn from this great example of Daniel and that you would protect us. As we've learned from these things and we guard our hearts that you would protect us and protect our children. 
Help them to form their own convictions. May we not be parents who are satisfied with the externals, who always look on the outside, but may we be working on the heart so that the hearts would, but from the hearts they would believe and from the hearts so that they would follow after you so that their convictions would be their own. And while they leave our homes, it would be untested. But as they enter into the world, that what was theirs alone in their heart has become theirs in practice externally, that they are, they are tested and tried and proven to be men and women of God. We entrust ourselves to you, humbling ourselves and depending upon you to trust the rewards that you give in your season. May we never be caught up in the entrapments of this world. May we always be those children of God who are looking to heavenly things so that we are guarded from our own personal lusts and desires. And all of this, Father, we know our weaknesses and we confess them. But we know that as we fix our eyes upon you, you will protect us from these things. So protect our body of believers here so that you would be receiving all honor and praise. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen.